with issue for all women. Hello, Mickey here. Welcome to a bonus, not quite gig cast. Let me explain. When the excellent people at Macmillan asked if Hannah and I would be up for hosting a panel event talking about death, we were keen to be involved. Now, I think most people's immediate reaction would be that death is a morbid topic. But in reality, this chat with four awesome women was warm, funny and fascinating and important. It helped that the four women knew what they were talking about. Kathy Rensenbrink is the best-selling author of the book The Last Act of Love, written after her brother Matty's eventual death from a road traffic accident which left him in a permanent vegetative state. Kathy and her family eventually applied to the courts for permission to withdraw all nutrition, finally allowing him to die. Poppy Mardle is the founder and director of Poppy's Funerals, a modern-day funeral company aiming to revolutionise the funeral trade. Simon Thompson is a restaurateur, entrepreneur and blogger who was diagnosed with incurable lung cancer aged 29. And Lucy Rudd, having been a nurse working in oncology and specialist palliative care for 20 years, is now an advisor for end-of-life care for Macmillan. Macmillan knows talking about death can be difficult, but having honest conversations can help you and your family prepare emotionally, practically and financially for the future, so you can get on with living life as fully as you can. You can visit macmillan.org forward slash let's talk about death to help start your conversation. Dying Matters Week kicks off on Monday the 13th of May, that is tomorrow if you're listening to this freshly squeezed on Sunday, and there are hundreds of events taking place across the UK. For more information, see www.dyingmatters.org. Just a little heads up that Simon was quite quiet on her microphone, so I've had to do a little bit of amping in post-production. This means there is a slight underlying buzz whenever she's talking, but I'm hopeful that you won't be too distracted by it, because what she has to say is really interesting. And without further ado, let's talk about death. So for the Standard Issue podcast gigs, we start by introducing ourselves with our name, what we do, slash why we're here for tonight, and also a fun fact, but we're going to start with a fun death fact. So my name is Mickey Noonan, I am part of the Standard Issue podcast team, and at my funeral I would like Pixie's Monkey's Gone to Heaven played, please. If all of you could make a note and make sure that happens, thanks very much. Poppy, off you go. So I'm a funeral director, and when I launched Poppy's Funerals in 2012, um, I, was on, I did it by myself, and you can't collect someone who's died on your own. Sounds very obvious. So my husband, um, who's a very committed man, would come with me in the middle of the night when someone died to collect whoever had died. And we would bring that person back to our mortuary. And obviously our lives carried on like that for about a year before we could start hiring people. And one of my friends came to stay for the weekend from America. And we all knew each other because we all studied art history together. And two people died that weekend. That's really rare. That was really rare for us at the time. And she thought, well, I'm here to stay with you. I might as well just come along and help because I've come all the way from America and it'd be interesting to see what you do. And she, and she was really helpful and, and, and both collections went very beautifully. But there was just a moment when we were back in the mortuary after the second collection, it was sort of 3 a.m. on a Sunday and she just started laughing hysterically, <laughs> like could not stop laughing. And I said, you know, what's going on? Why are you laughing so hard? And she just said, I just can't believe that we are three art historians in a mortuary. <laughs> just like, don't know how this has happened. Cathy? <laughs> <laughs> My name's Cathy Rensenbrink, and I'm a writer. My 
death thing I'll tell you about is that my father-in-law died, which obviously isn't, you know, that's not that funny. But the <laughs> funny bit is that my son at the time was, I think, about two. And we used to drive a lot from London to Cornwall, and we had to go through Devon. And my husband and I aren't particularly religious, but obviously someone had been telling him about, you know, he was very interested in what had happened to Grandad and where he'd gone. And then the, this whole heaven-Devon confusion. <laughs> <laughs> And we still drive through Devon a lot, and we still always say, oh, we're in Devon, and have a little chat about the time when Matt thought that his granddad had gone to Devon. <laughs> Did you see all of my old pets? Apparently that's where they had gone as well, yeah? <laughs> Lucy? So, hi, my name's Lucy Rudd. I'm an end-of-life care advisor at Macmillan, and I'm a palliative care nurse. And uh, my fun death story, I promise you this is true... Uh, so I went. I love a story that starts like that. <laughs> uh, so one day I uh, was asked to go and see a gentleman who was dying. Um, we'll just call him John. For was that his name? No. Oh. <laughs> uh, so I went in to see John. He was in a, in a private room and his family were there. And he was very close to dying. So he was probably in the last hours of his life. And seemingly unconscious. Um, so... His family were there, and I think there were sort of three of them, three women. I think it was his wife and his two daughters. So I went in, and even though he appeared to be unconscious, it would be very normal for me that I would still go and introduce myself to somebody. And so I, I went to his bed, and I held his hand, and I said, you know, my name's introduced myself, said why I was there, um, and no response from, from John. So I then just sort of started chatting to his family, and we were just having a little talk about how they were. And then he sort of roused a bit, and so I said to him again, oh, hello, John, my name's Lucy, and, um, and I think I, I didn't really know, there wasn't much I was going to say to him because he, he was in a very poor state. So I said something like, is there anything I can do for you? And very definitely, underneath his oxygen mask, <laughs> he puckered up his lips and went... <laughs> <laughs> And then moved his hands to his side and made a very slight but definite pelvic thrust. <laughs> and his family absolutely cracked up. And it was just the most wonderful moment of... It, was, it, it sounds really pervy. It wasn't pervy. Um, sounds a bit they, pervy. <laughs> it wasn't, it wasn't. But actually, it was, a, it was a really lovely moment for them that they were just like, this is him. This is him making a joke. This is what he's like. And they... It, it was, you know, we all just laughed about it for quite a long time and it felt like a really lovely, weird memory for them. Um, but it was, it was very funny. Simon? <laughs> that is a great story. Yeah. Um, no, what a great job that you do as well. It's fantastic work. Um, my name is Simon Thompson. Um, I run a restaurant called uh, Masala Walla Cafe in South London. I also have a blog called CoenCancer.com where I talk about my um, experiences living with stage four lung cancer. Uh, and my fun fact is that um, at the point of diagnosis, I was diagnosed last April. Um, the I was given a prognosis even though I didn't ask for it, which was a bit harsh because I think you meant to... <laughs> at least at least you know have an option but yeah i was kind of barked the prognosis at me which was six to 12 months without treatment so today i'm pretty much on bonus time i'm on extra time now so every day is a gift <laughs> thanks to your nhs obviously and conventional treatment there you go that's my fun fact great <laughs> it's a great fact yeah hannah have you got a question um, and I've got a fact. Oh, yeah, sorry. Come on now. Um, I'm Hannah Dunleavy. I'm also one of the standard issue team. 
I was just thinking I changed my fact about three times while you were all talking. Um, when, my da- when my dad died, um, we made it to the hospital, not in time, and we get put in a side room. And, uh, you may be aware of this. Someone comes in and tells you things. Um, like, literally, physically, what happens next? There's a morgue. There's a... And at that point, the woman, who was very nice with the clipboard, said, um, has anyone here driven today? And I said, yes, that I had. And my sister said, yes, that she had. And she said to us, well, just to let you know that because Dad's died today, parking will be free. (laughs) (laughs) And I nearly crapped my pants laughing. (laughs) She didn't say much else to us after that, to be honest. Um, Yes, I do have a question. Um, Okay, so we're here to talk about death. So I just wondered, what was the last conversation that any of you had about death before we came to this panel? I'm going to start with I'm going to start with you because you've got the microphone in your hand. Well, I suppose living with um, so there's no stage after stage four. Stage four means the last, you know, it means that this cancer has metastasized to different locations in your body. So it's been interesting my experiences with death so far. So, for instance, when I was first diagnosed, I got post-traumatic stress disorder just because I feared death so much. So even when I'm going to bed, I was like, I'm going to die. You know, it got that bad and that irrational and but through obviously, you know, having CBT and therapy, I realised I just, I just never kind of approached death or had a conversation about death properly. And I never really thought about my mortality. Obviously, being 30 years old, at the time I was 29, just never had those conversations. But the last year has been, it's been beautiful in a sense that I've kind of come to an acceptance. And I think that's really important when you've been kind of dealt these sort of hands, if you've been given a life-changing diagnosis, accepting what's ahead... It's, 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 it's a huge life lesson, I believe. I agree. Lucy? Well, obviously, in my job, I talk about death every day, pretty much so. Um, yesterday, probably. Um, but in terms of a conversation with a, a patient or a family, um, that were, once a month I do clinical practice. So last month um, I met a, a lady and her family and actually had a, a really long conversation with her family that was more around uncertainty. So we had a long talk about not knowing when she might die and how that impacted on what we were going to do, where she might go, whether she should stay in hospital and how difficult it was to to not know what was going to happen. Um, so we talked about that for quite a long time. Can I ask, what about in your private life, in your family life, when was the last time you talked about death? Uh, well, my husband and I talked about it yesterday, but, um, <laughs> but probably because we were yeah. because of this. Um, I thought you were going to get romantic. It was weird. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Um, I mean, I think you know sometimes because I talk about death most days, I don't always go home and talk yeah, about it. Yeah, bring it, it home but, um, with you. Yeah, Kathy, yeah. I do talk about death a lot, um, and I am very interested in it I mean I always feel I want to point out I didn't I didn't want to become a death expert you know I'd very much rather my brother hadn't been knocked over and then had a horrible long terrible death but what I have learned from I've sort of accepted that that is going to be dominant in my life um and I'll never not miss him and I'll never not feel sad about it and I have come to see it as Sort of a gift. Not a gift that I wanted. (laughs) Not a gift that I wanted to have, but that given that this has happened to me, if I can be useful about it, then I will. So um, 
I suppose, so a couple of days ago, someone wrote to me having read my book and told me their story, which happens a lot, which, again, I find that a huge privilege that something I've written has encouraged someone else to share an experience back with me. I, I just, I, I love that. So I replied to that. Um, and we, in, a fam in my family, we do talk about it quite a lot. And we just went to Cork. My dad's Irish. Um, and his mother died when he was eight. He was the youngest of nine siblings. And he woke up in the bed he shared with his parents and found his mother cold beside him. And we just, and it, you know, it, it splintered that family and we just went to Cork with the, with, his, with the children, quite a lot of his siblings, and we were all together talking about the impact that, that, the, the, that the mother's death had on all those children, but also celebrating the fact that we weren't all there. Some of us were there. And that was sort of really, that was a very, very beautiful thing and felt like a huge privilege to be there with all those relatives, having sort of meaningful, deep deep talk about these difficult issues. Cathy, can I just touch on, you mentioned that people write into you. When you wrote The Last Acts of Love, did, did it seem like you'd opened a door to people that had previously been closed for them, that they'd, they'd not felt they could go anywhere else, and so they talked to you? Um, I think so, and I, I don't think I was aware of this, but I think it was because in writing that book, I opened a door that I'd thought had been closed to me. Um, it it, it had been something that I had just desperately tried to not talk about. and Well, I thought I'd talked about it enough, to be honest. I'd had, I mean, I'd cried so many mountains full of tears and had so much therapy, and I just, I couldn't, I just wanted to stop thinking about it. So I tried to do that for, I don't know, another decade. <laughs> you know, drowning the old sorrows. Um, but then by writing the book, I think, and, and readdressing it, I think what people respond to... Is, is that sense that actually there are some things that we don't get over in any sense. Mm -hmm. there, are there are life events that happen to you that are so significant that, that you're not going to get over them. And I write a lot about how, you know, so much of what we talk about in our culture, I'm sure we'll come on to this, the idea that grief has some kind of finite time, the idea that it's a linear process, none of those things ever worked for me. And it's only really by accepting grief as a lifelong companion that I have managed to loosen the shackles of it. So I now feel less like I'm locked in this struggle where death will, you know, pull me into the grave too, and, and more that I've accepted its presence. And not at all in the same way, but that there is something about having an awareness of death in life that can be a beautiful thing in its, yeah. in its own way. Yeah, thank you. Poppy? So I am a funeral director, so I definitely talk about death every day. And I do take it straight home and then spend the evening boring my husband with it. I think because I find it co constantly um, like mind-expanding and life-enriching. And you know, I have a different type of privilege with the families and the clients that I work with that, that we get to kind of journey with them through something. Um, and we get to watch the way they fingers crossed most of the time, support one another, sometimes, very sadly, um, kind of implode. Um, and that teaches you much about the way you might want to be with your family or, you know, um, things you don't want to get wrong. Really interestingly and very sadly, um, two nights ago, my four-year-old daughter's teacher kind of suddenly died with no um, notice 
And so I found myself in that position that I sometimes am in of now I need to have this conversation and I need to get this thing right. Um, so I, I just wanted to share that because that was really kind of interesting and sad, but, but important to have a chat with my little girl about, you know, a kind of key figure in her life who died with no notice. And, and um, the focus there was just trying to get her to understand a kind of new reality. Mm-hmm. Um, I, think it's, I think if you work with death, uh, you can sometimes forget that it is actually going to happen to you as well. Um, and that can be quite baffling when it does. Yeah. We were chatting earlier and you said a lot of the parents had no comprehension of how to deal with the situation. Yeah, I th- and I think that's my sort of life's ambition and, and um, sadness about where we find ourselves culturally right now is um, that I think when death happens to us, we are dealing with the concept of death at the same time that we're dealing with the concept of losing someone we love. And those are actually two different things. And it would be really useful to deal with the first one first in kind of safe circumstances, theoretically. Yeah. And, and certainly I see that in my work. You know, families come in to spend, and friends to spend time with the body of someone they adore. And often it's the first dead person they've seen. So they're literally looking at death for the first time and coming to terms with the fact that they've lost this person that they adore. And I think the combination of those two things is really cataclysmic and unhelpful. So I'm desperate to get tiny school children into the mortuary. Um, <laughs> just going to, like, approach the school slowly about that one. I think it's, as a kid, I'd have really wanted to go on that trip. Uh, well, it's interesting, because I don't know if anyone here watches Derry Girls, which is set in Northern Ireland. And in one of the episodes of that, this, this um, series... Um, they went to a wake, and the English boy at the wake had never seen a dead body, whereas the Irish girls were really just blasé about that. They were like, <laughs> we've seen loads of them. There's always one in the front room. That's what happens. Yeah. So I think it's, it's indifferent. It's, it, it seems a particularly English thing in that, in that culture. to Because to, I had never... The first dead body I ever saw was my dad. I was 42. Yeah. And isn't that a crime, really? So I, you know, I'm clearly also pregnant and um, have two small children and... And I, tr- I liken it to, like, imagine if we lived in a society where you weren't... No one had seen a, new, a newborn baby or, you know, no one had seen a baby under the age of one. And then if you, if you had one, that would be terrifying because yeah. <laughs> they, they don't look like one-year-olds. I mean, Uh-oh. it looks pretty traumatic as it stands yeah. to me. Exactly. <laughs> so, so, so it's the same with a dead body. You know, if you, if you don't know that that is a totally natural part of life that's going to happen to all of us... Then, you, then I, f- I feel like we are letting people down by not giving them that experience mm. before it's their turn. Yeah. Now you don't work with death, Mickey. So when was the last time? Well, actually, I know because you and we I had a, we had a chat about yeah, it the other um, day. Incognito, the comedian, um, died on stage a couple of weeks ago, and we had a chat. And I said I was okay with it. So fingers crossed, won't happen now. But I <laughs> think she's not really paid any attention there to what I'm going to have to deal with <laughs> if she dies on stage. Yeah. So selfish, Hannah. I know. I'm sorry. (laughs) Can I ask, and I'm going to start with Simon, can I ask why you think it is so hard for us or we find it so hard to talk about death? 
I think we find it really hard to talk about death. I think we're just, we're, it's a British mentality. Uh, talking about death and why we struggle as a society to talk about it. I think we're just very British. And, you know, the terminologies that we use when people die, so you talk about them, you know, passing away. It's always whispering. Um, you know, you draw the curtains on a cremate, you know, crema- like a cremation ceremony. You go to the pub and get pissed, you know. But, the, you know, the actual, you know, talking about grieving, about the individual who's died, you know, even saying the word died, you know, that's what's happened here. It's like a human has died. Whether you knew them personally very, very well or otherwise, it's good to acknowledge that death has happened um, as opposed to, you know, I don't know, they've not got lost, have they? You know, when you say someone's passed away or, you or know, lost someone, they, they yeah. fell asleep, you know. They, they didn't fall asleep, they died. And I think it's really important to make that distinction. Yeah, yeah, yeah they're really good points. Lucy? Um. I'm going to really agree with what Poppy said, actually. I think that that really illustrates one of the reasons that we find it so difficult to talk about death and dying is because we're not used to just talking about death in a in a more theoretical, um, slightly removed way. That means, actually, for most of us, when we talk about death or dying, we are talking about somebody that we love and that we care about. And that's really hard to think Mm -hmm. about and talk about somebody that you know and you love losing that person and not having them in your life is obviously that is really hard and I think that's one of the reasons along with all of the you know we're British and we don't like talking about anything um, (laughs) that makes it an even harder step to make to talk about something that will be painful and will be difficult Um, but I think that we've really lost something that actually if you do talk about that it can really help and it can make you uh, feel less anxious about what's going to happen in the future and help both you and the person that uh, loves you and you love them to to feel more at peace with things and I think we've we've lost that a bit or a lot Um, but yeah I think it's, it's both of those things are really critical that we're not used to just talking about it as part of our general lexicon as part of life so then when it comes to it and we have to talk about something that's really meaningful and hard for us, it's an extra step that is, is difficult to take, but really valuable when we do. Yeah, I mean, I agree. I think sometimes people are a bit embarrassed. And I've been to, obviously, funerals in England, but I've been to the funerals, a funeral of an Irish relative, and it was entirely different. You know, the casket was open, everyone was wailing. Um, and then... Uh, funeral in Holland which was very beautiful but was and it was more connected to the actual literal fact of death you know the the body was kept in the house and we used to do that people used to die at home so children would be in a house where there was a body or they would know someone in the street and we were more connected to it whereas now there's this sort of sanitized idea that we must keep ourselves and children away from anything unpleasant. And I do, I mean, sometimes I say to people, you know, I have terrible news for you. We're all going to die. And really, surely that is the one most solid fact that any of us know. And yet you do feel like a bit of a party pooper for bringing it up. (laughs) So, and I do, so the whole English thing of just like not wanting to bring the mood down, (laughs) which I still feel, you know, I still... Um, you know, for years, and frankly, still, if I'm if I'm supposed to be talking about my book, if I'm supposed to be talking about death, then it's kind of great. But still, 
it happens to you less as you get older. But if anybody asks me the dreaded question of have you got any brothers and sisters, I still, I just don't want to see the look in their, on their face when I start telling them a sad story. And I see the look on their face, which is sort of saying, oh, I wasn't expecting this. I didn't want this. I was only making conversation. Don't, you know, oh, God, oh is, is that the time? Oh, I seem to have finished my drink. Oh, I see someone over the other side of the room. I know. You know, we get very embarrassed about it. How do we as human beings stay present with other people's pain? That is just such a big question, and I don't think we're very good at it. And I do think we're less good than we used to be, um, which is a modern life thing about thinking. Well, that's interesting, because what you were just saying, I mean, a conversation has to have two people, doesn't it? So mm. you can, with the best will in the world, want to talk about something, but somebody needs to want to talk mm. it back to you. I actually find the people that I know, younger people, are, I think, generally, because they're further away from it, or at least they believe they're further away from it, are a bit more open for chatting about things like that. I found that people tend to hit a wall of when the first person in that generation dies, then nobody else wants to talk about their health or death or anything, because I suppose because it's a lot more present in your life at that point. Yeah, I mean, I definitely feel at the moment my dad, who's a deeply lovely man, and I completely adore him in case that isn't evident, which it probably is. I think at the moment he slightly wishes I'd shut up about it a bit because, you know, recently um, a, a relative of ours who's his age has died and a friend of ours who's his age has died. And I think he's definitely feeling slight... And he's got various aches and pains and a- ailments, and yeah. I think he sometimes wishes it could just be just the jokes and less, less of the death chat. Yeah. <laughs> Imagine if you're Iggy Pop. You must just be like, never talk yeah. about death ever. Yeah. <laughs> Everyone's gone. Um, but you were saying that we used to deal with it better in the past, and it reminded me of a trip uh, I took as a kid with the school to Wigan Pier. Mm, yeah. And they had a room that was laid out from the late 1800s, early 1900s, and it had a coffin in it. It had a coffin in it, and the explanation was this was, you know, an open casket so the family members could say... And I think we all freaked out because it just seems so alien to how we deal with it now. I think there's... I, I, I find graveyards really interesting places, and I just love looking at what it says on the gravestones. Um, not everyone thinks that's entirely sane, but I just I do. No, I, I agree. I'm I'm with you. I always yeah. loved. Them oh, as you well. want to see what's written on the gravestone my dad's buried next to? It makes me chortle oh. every time I walk past it, and I don't think I should really. <laughs> but um, <laughs> there you have it. Go on, what's it say? I can't remember it, but it's a poem about rainbows in people's hearts. <laughs> But one of the things you see in the graveyard when you're in a, a, a graveyard that's been around for a long time is in the past, people died. Lots of people died. Whole families died. Um, it used to be more difficult to find a woman whose child hadn't died than it was the other way around. Mm-hmm. Whereas now we've got to the point where we think death is some sort of personal affront. You know, yeah. that we, we're not, we don't expect it. It's a terrible tragedy. We get to the point where we almost think you shouldn't be able to get over it. That, you know, there are some deaths you can't get over... And it's just not part of the fabric of... It's just a consequence of getting better at healing people that it's less of a fabric of our lives. And that it's, it's, an, uh, it's an unusual occurrence. And that's why then we're less able to cope with it. So that's why people cross the road rather than have to face their neighbour who has endured some terrible tragedy because it's rarer than it used to be. Yeah. Poppy. Yeah, I, th- I mean, I think people also think that death is sort of catching. <laughs> um, and I think for, for lots of people, kind of bringing it up 
And I think I think I think there are quite a lot of parallels with like sex, maybe sort of forty or fifty years ago. You know, that if you talk about sex, you'll get pregnant immediately. And if you talk about death, then you'll immediately die. Yeah, you'd sort of jinx in yourself. Yeah, you, so when I um, left my very socially acceptable job at Sotheby's Auction House and told my mum and dad that I was going to become an undertaker, um, <laughs> my mum, I really struggled to... And my mum's a social worker, so she's, you know, she's not... Um, she knows about taboo and she loves to break them. Um, but she was kind of really weird about it for a really long time and I finally got it out of her that she just she was just certain that I was going to be hit by a bus and that that there would be some like I don't know if it's irony or actual like you have brought this on yourself by deciding to become a funeral director so and I and obviously like logically when you talk that through or like and I think a lot of people just don't think they're going to die they they they've they haven't they haven't thought about that at all. So that there were people who people say to me all the time, "What you do is very niche," <laughs> and I think like it's pretty much the most universal job in the world. Yeah, yeah. Um, what Hannah and I do because is you're definitely going to need me more than once. It's, really, yeah, it's you and taxes, isn't it? <laughs> yeah, and and but, but you know, and 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 it's very similar to what Kathy was saying. You know, but I have a different take on it. So I. I quite like what I do because I feel like it sorts the wheat from the chaff at a drinks party, right? It's like, I'm not up for shallow conversation. So, you know, do you want to have this chat or not? I'm like, I'm like a grandma. I'm going to sit in an armchair and the, the best people can come and talk to me about death. <laughs> but but what, I have, what I have found is I will... People, people will ask me what I do and I will just start talking quite passionately. And then I'll sort of look up and uh, they'll just be like streaming with tears. And then they'll tell me something about that happened to them because everybody has at least one story and maybe like slightly more arrogantly I feel like I'm I really love that that the ice breaking I do gives people permission to tell a story that they that they long to tell because we all want to talk about the people that we love that have died or share the poor experience we had as well you know be cross about um you know being told your prognosis when you didn't ask for it you know that Almost like empowering people to kind of have an opinion and, and have some emotions. Now, I learned a lesson when my dad died, and that's that there's a whole lot of really tedious admin that comes with death. Um, and if you're not a particularly organised person, which I'm not, I now realise that I'm leaving a whole pile of paperwork for someone to do. So I do feel inspired to maybe get on top of that a bit. Have any of you put any effort into looking to be it a will or whatever, just sorting out your life admin in preparation for death? I'm going to go to Poppy because she has a microphone in her hand. Um, so things that I used to be really snobby about, like life insurance and a will, because of what I've seen, I now am like a big fan of. Um, and have kind of set up, and I'm sure that's because of what I've seen both through my work and in my personal life of what what can happen if you don't do those things. Um, but I do I feel quite cross about how much bureaucracy and admin grieving people have to deal with because I feel like when someone dies, you just should be able to go, walk into a room and get into the fetal position and sort of come out when you're ready. And actually what happens is it's like, right, now you need to collect this certificate and you need to take it to this place that's open from 1 p.m. till 1.30 p.m. only on Sundays. And 
you know, and, and then when you get there, or like when you're at the registrar, which, you know, processes deaths and births and weddings. Yeah. You have to hang out with newborn babies and kind of like couples that are kissing and... I had, we had a problem with the registrar with, with my dad. Um, I, I don't know what happened, but basically the coroner did a, a report and it didn't get forwarded. And then you, you're supposed to register a death within a certain amount of time. And they just hadn't sent us a time for this appointment. And I was like, I don't want to be fined for not registering his death. When I've tried to and you're not being particularly helpful. And um, when I got there, they gave us an appointment. When we got there, we weren't on the book for this appointment. And I just sat down on the carpet and I said, that's fine. I'm just not going to leave until somebody registers that my dad is dead because <laughs> he's been dead for two months. And I just like a bit of paperwork that says he's dead, please. And this woman sort of looked at me and I said, it's fine. You can just carry on around me, but I'm just not <laughs> leaving this room until this is sorted. And I don't feel like I should have had to do that, really, I suppose. So, yes, admin. And, and, and also, you know, the coroner is a really good example. That, you know, the coroner gets involved when a death is unexpected. So for a lot of people, that's, you know, what they're going through is possibly very tra traumatic. Um, they certainly, it's, it's likely they haven't been able to prepare for what's happening. And coroner, I mean, it's a boring thing to say, but coroners are just horribly underfunded. So we've looked after families, you know, where a, where a son has died by suicide and they're just like on hold for five hours to find out what's going on with the post-mortem. You know, and it's, that's where, you know, I'm so keen on these kind of campaigns because I think a lot of this is actually like trying to get the public to have higher expectations mm -hmm. and to kind of demand more, which is really hard when you're grieving because you're not feeling really empowered and fighty. <laughs> um, you know, or you, alternatively, you are feeling really fighty. Well, thank goodness. <laughs> and then you get like, well, I didn't mean I didn't in that case, but then like you end up in that, oh, they've got a bit hysterical. And you don't want you to... You know, she's a yeah. troublemaker. Yeah. Like, we've had people... We've had coroners describe, like, grieving parents as, like, troublemakers. And I think it's, you know, it's this whole kind of... You know, I, I, I like, again, it's where I am mentally, but, you know, you look at the childbirth movement and my mum talks about when she had me and my brother and it was like, you just did what the doctor said and you just got out of there as quickly as possible. You know, you just got home as quickly as you could. Um, and now, like, the midwife's asking me if I want the placenta for my breakfast, you know, and, um, and there's been a shift. Oh. There's been a massive shift, you know, and I don't. We're Thanks not here much. to talk about yeah, that. Yeah, I'm Sorry. all right with chat Sorry. and death. But yeah, yeah. this is yeah. too far. Yeah, yeah. But what I'm getting at is, like, it's now normal yeah. for women to feel empowered, yeah. at least in theory, around their childbirth. And um, there's no reason why that can't happen with death, too. Kathy? Uh, yes, very true. And I think things like utility companies, phone companies, I hear from so many people, they write to me, and then almost like as a, a postscript say like, oh, and the thing that really pushed me over the edge was when I was trying to get my mum's phone line cancelled and they eventually cancelled mine instead. And, yeah. you know, all that sort of stuff. And again, you think that can't be beyond the wit of those big companies to employ people to deal kindly with those that have been bereaved. And to stop sending your letters. The, the, the letters, yeah. yeah. Stop sending the letters and stop, you know, the cold calling calls, all that yeah. sort of thing. I just feel that there could be presumably some bit of housekeeping. And that, again, certainly companies should take that upon themselves to have a policy of being helpful to people when they're really vulnerable. People are so vulnerable, aren't they, when they're grieving? And that, again, vulnerability in some people makes them sort of floppy and in some people does make them a bit confrontational. And, and nobody needs to 
end up it's so easy in that situation, I think, to make a situation worse. Yeah. And so, you know, we need to kid glove people a bit as a, as a society and individually. I've gone a bit off topic. I personally am quite well organised <laughs> about in, in, in the event of um, the, the big unforeseen event. Um, and because we anticipate what's happened to us, I, the thing I imagine is I imagine that an accident will befall me because that's what I've... No, you know, I think we we anticipate that. So I'm I'm fairly always in fairly good. It's the whole joke about you know always wear nice knickers in case you get knocked over. Um, I'm quite well organised in that sense, uh-huh. <laughs> and I'm very I'm like hyper aware of it. I do stuff like um, I always make sure my mum knows where the most recent draft of the books I'm working on is because you know if she knows where it is, she can send it to my publisher. They might be able to do something with it. Then my son can have some money. You know that kind of thing. I'm quite. Um, I'm quite aware and organised in that way. And not particularly in other ways, but in that (laughs) way. Lucy? Um, Yeah, I think um, there is definitely lots of uh, difficult admin that people who are bereaved have to go through, and there are things that we can do as individuals to to help them later by by being organised around things. And so, yes, I have um our will is in progress because obviously you need to you need to change your will and update your will if there's a new person in your family so that is in progress at the moment but um and i also discovered recently because my husband and i were talking about um wanting to donate our body to medical science and i was like all up for i was like almost there doing it and then i realized that um they might not take your body if you've moved far away from where the university is that once it so you have to be sure that you're going to stay somewhere for a while so and we're thinking about moving so I think it's not the right time to do it because I need to pick the right medical school that is close enough to where we live so that is something I didn't know before but it's a good good piece of admin to know yeah, <laughs> yeah. it is lovely um so obviously with me uh on the panel here with a terminal diagnosis I've had to have my fair share of deaf admin but being young didn't have a lot so I don't have that many assets so at the time of the diagnosis I had two businesses one of which I had to close because it was a startup and it needed my time and attention which at that period I wasn't very well uh, so you know I had to make that decision but the way I did it was so frantic because it just again death was never ever discussed or you know obviously I had experiences of death in my family but for it to be happening to me. I was like, me? I'm going to die? Like, what the hell? Like, what's that all about? Um, So there was a lot of shock uh, and drama at the time. But, you know, through those conversations, I think that's where the therapy happened. And, you know, my sisters and my family now understand my wishes. You know, they understand where I'm at. And we, we don't talk about death all the time, but we've started to bring it into our kind of conversations quite naturally you know if it comes up if something's I don't know on the telly or I've seen an article you know something that's kind of got my thought process going got my cogs turning I will have a conversation and be like right this is how you know my sisters get married this weekend and just just because I made the comment I, I said look well regardless of what happens to me make sure the wedding happens I wouldn't want you to cancel it or anything yeah. like that but it's happening this weekend but the point is that she never knew my wishes so if something happened to me yeah. she wouldn't know what the right thing to do is and it's actually causes a lot of unnecessary stress if you don't have those conversations yeah. so yeah yeah that's it that kind of leads on to our next question 
Mick, doesn't it? I was going to sort of change the question. Oh, okay. I was. Oh, hello. Look at that. Hello, excitement. Wow. I was going to ask Simon, because I checked beforehand and you're okay with answering this. Does knowing the time scale, is it is it a help or a hindrance? How how do you find it's affected how you're living? Well, I think for me, it's a prognosis and it's just it's based on statistics and, you know, like especially with you know in the cancer kind of world the therapies are changing constantly so i am constantly being told about new you know new lines of 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 treatment so recently my targeted therapy drug has stopped working and it's quite visibly obvious that my cancer has progressed so now i've got a chemotherapy regime but it's been it's only been signed off very recently on the nhs so there's things happening all the time Mm -hmm. so it's a chemo um and immunotherapy combination with targeted therapy so it's quite an aggressive treatment, but it's just something that's absolutely brand new and has shown very, very good results as opposed to your standard chemotherapy. So you have to kind of like be hopeful that things constantly change and the yeah. prognosis is just a prognosis. It's not the, what's the word, expiry date. Be all yeah. <laughs> yeah. Did it take you a while to wrap your head around that though? Oh, absolutely, yeah. yeah. I mean, you can't say it was an easy thing for me, you know, just given my age. Um, and I suppose I had previous anxieties about death, which I had to overcome, which I didn't realise. I would say I had death anxiety. You know, what's the worst that could happen? Living life on the edge, you're like, something's going to go wrong. Why are things going well? You know? So just, I don't know, it's been quite liberating, actually, being diagnosed with this, because you kind of address those anxieties. And it's what's left, just living for the day. Lucy? Yeah, um, so you asked about whether it's a, a blessing or a curse to, to know your prognosis, and um, for me, it's something that I always, when I'm talking to patients, I will, you know, and sometimes it surprises them that I will say, I don't know, you know, no, nobody can know for sure anything about, um, you know, exactly when you're going to die or when um, your loved one is going to die. And I think that idea of, you know, would you find it helpful to know or would you... Um, like we talked about earlier, would you lose all hope and suddenly that would curse you and you, you know, it means you're going to die. Um, of course, talking about death doesn't mean that you will die. But I think that's as individual as as we are all individual. So some people, even if I could tell them, I know for sure this is when you're going to die, some people would want to know that and some people wouldn't. So I don't think there's ever a blanket, it's a good or a bad thing to know that. But I think what is always a blessing is to have an opportunity to talk about what you might want. So offering someone a chance to say, are there things that are really important to you that um, you would really like someone to know? Like like what you talked about with your sister knowing that you would want her to still be married. I mean, that's like incredibly important. And most people will have things like that. If you ask them, are there things that are really important to you? then they will have things that are really important to them that are, they may be big things, they may be little things. And having that opportunity to talk about that, that is always a blessing, whether, because you can't get it back. You can't later say, you know, there's there's, there's no way back from that. You can't, if you've, you've either had the opportunity to do that or you haven't. Um, and so I think that's that's why we're here talking about this, because it's really, really important that we talk about it more and give people an opportunity to have an important conversation and whether or not that includes talking about when you might die or not doesn't really matter it's talking about what's important to you that that really matters shall we talk about funerals yeah let's talk about funerals so 
the question is twofold. Um, we'll stick with you, Lucy, because you've got the mic. What do you think a funeral is there to achieve? What is the purpose of a funeral? And how much control do you think the person whose funeral it is should have over that ceremony or process or however it's being dealt with? I think it, it depends on you as a, an individual. So um, you talked earlier about somebody you knew who actually was really important to them to plan out every detail of their funeral and that was a really important part of the process for them. Mm-hmm. Um, and so if that is meaningful to you, then that's incredibly important and that's that's all that matters. But for other people, like for example, my husband and I have talked quite a bit about what we might want at our funeral and both of us have felt like, actually, I don't really have strong feelings about that and whatever would be helpful to you in that moment, you should feel free to, to go and do that. Um, but you know, so that's that's how I feel. But it might not be how the the person next to me feels. So I think actually, is it for is it for you or is it for the people that are grieving? It's both. It's one. It's the other. It's it's a whole combination of things that's as wide and varied as all the people that we are. Yeah, Hannah. When your dad died, he'd given you two specific bits of information that then. Yeah, kind of- and he didn't. He didn't. We didn't. <clears throat> We knew he was dying, but he died a lot quicker than we expected, so we didn't have a conversation about it. But having... He comes from a massive Irish family. We'd been to a lot of funerals. And he'd said a couple of things at those funerals, one of which was that he didn't want a priest. He didn't word it quite like that. It was a bit more offensive. Um, And the other one was that he wanted to be buried. Um, And they were the only two things we knew. And oddly, those two things became overwhelmingly important in planning his funeral, which, bearing in mind my mum had cancer at the same time, was quite a stressful time for us. And just before Christmas he died, and you you all know this, Poppy, it's really hard to get a humanist celebrant just before Christmas because people get married and loads of people have died. Um, And we were left with a decision that we didn't have. That, that it, either there was two choices we, we had a priest we ignored him his one wish and had a priest or I did it and they were literally the only two options that we had and I thought well, I'm going to have to do it then aren't I because it, he only asked me for one thing and I, it felt really important that I had to achieve that one thing and oddly once I'd made that decision it was really easy to do I didn't, I didn't find it upsetting. I found it quite easy. And the, the further away I get from it, the more I'm really, really glad that I did it. And oddly, several people have come to up to me afterwards and asked me if I would do their <laughs> funeral because they quite liked what I said and they thought it was quite fun and interesting. And I really like the idea of that because, I mean, I'm a journalist and the best stories... That's what, what you have to do to achieve to a fun- with a funeral is to sit down and discover who that person is, what the nub of them was. And you hear, you're going to hear all the best stories about that person, be that this is what they did in the war or, you know, this is what they did in feminist liberation in the 70s or whatever. And I think that stuff's fascinating. Actually, I think I'd love to do that. If this doesn't pan out, obviously. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, Hannah's, Hannah's doing a drinks reception later. You can get her details. I can wrote I, the can... eulogies for my grandma and my granddad. And it felt a real honour to actually be able to go and talk about them and it resonate with the other people there. So, yeah. Mm. I don't... 
Can I ask you, Poppy, is that a common state of affairs? Are we, are we, do we have a shortage of humanist people? Not really. Okay. I mean, I think so. So I think there's, a, there's also a misunderstanding. So we get a lot of calls from families saying, you know, which shows how little we're planning and thinking. Like, you know, we're not religious. And lots of people ask for a humorist. <laughs> You think like you want to stand up? Well, comedian. I can do that too. You can no, do that too. If anyone's um, but and and hum- so humanist celebrants are fantastic, and there are lots of them about, and and they really pioneered celebrancy. So the idea of um, you know having someone who could lead the ceremony who is not religious. But now there's a whole array of people who will do, you know, because that's who we often are. You know, I want the Lord's Prayer, but I also want Elvis. Do you know what I mean? And, and, and I'm scared to ask my vicar for that. Um, so I think what's happening is, uh, quite rightly, and something I'm really keen on, you know, funerals are becoming more personal and more a reflection of the person who died. And if that person was, you know, practising Catholic and, and, and um, traditional, then a traditional funeral would be very appropriate. Um, and if they weren't that, then for the people sitting in the congregation to have to go through that will may well leave them feeling like this has got no reflection, which is what, you know, something we hear a lot. And it's something I've experienced. Like you sit in a funeral and just think this feels a bit like school assembly and it's just got nothing to do with my friend. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Um, But I I was just going to comment on something that Lucy said about when you were saying, um, you know, there are people who have it all mapped out and we absolutely speak to those people and their families. And and that can be very reassuring for people. But, but I'd say the conversation that you and your husband have had is a full conversation about funeral plans because to say to, to give someone permission to do whatever it is they need to do when you die is everything. Um, and it actually can be. We've had some quite tricky scenarios where the person who's dying has been so rigid about what they want to happen. And then, you know, so there was a, a family, you know, it needs to be at this crematorium and it needs to be like this and at two minutes and 34 seconds, three doves need to emerge from <laughs> you know and, and then and then kind of achieving that becomes this like quite stressful it's like corpsezilla it's like <laughs> it feels it can feel a bit like you know you're you're because i one of the reasons i love um what i do people say like oh you know you're you're an event it's like being a wedding planner it is the opposite of being a wedding planner because there's no cake wanna, there's no not <laughs> no there's no nonsense when it comes to death yeah. It is what it is, and whether people like it or not, the emotion is out of the bag. Um, And the best funerals that we get to be part of are the ones that are an authentic reflection of how people are feeling, whatever that is. So actually, I'm not a big fan of the celebration of life movement. I mean, I think it's great that people can see um, what happens after death as a celebration of life, if that's how everyone in the room is feeling. But some of the funerals we do are desperately sad and desperately tragic and requiring everyone in the room to be really jolly and not, you know, you've seen people kind of stand up and do eulogies and say, like, he wouldn't have wanted us to cry. Yeah. And it's like, well, I think you're allowed to cry. You know, this well, is really sad. the other point, isn't it? Funerals aren't for strictly for the person who, strictly for the person who died. They're for the, everyone else to yeah. have some watershed moment, yeah. aren't they? Yeah. yeah. Is your legacy... This is to all of you, obviously, something that you've thought of, whatever you mean by legacy, be that your children or your career or how you're remembered. Is that something you've put some thought into? Cathy? Um, it is a bit, really. I suppose I do try to... I try to put more good in the world than bad. 
um, which might sound like a bit of a feebly modest aim, um, but I just find it's very easy to get overwhelmed with the, the you know the scale, the, the sort of the scale of how terrible everything is, and then you get so exhausted by not knowing what you could be doing to help anyone that you don't do anything at all. So I've kind of scaled back, and I just try and put more good in the world than bad, and I hope that that's um, maybe something that um, people would think. And I think a lot about my son because of course that's really the only thing I care about so that's the only reason I care about being alive really is because I hope I can shepherd him pretty inexpertly to be honest (laughs) I'm not sure I'm any great shakes as a mother but again I know the statistics I know it's terrible for children when their parents die young so I'm just I try I think about him and I do think that he is um that that's my duty really and I think I sort of do think about but all of us, you know, because if we, death is not the worst outcome. If you, and if you can just see death as, as the end of life, if we can be a little bit more, less frightened of it, a little bit less rabbit in headlights about it, mm. then we can help each other more on all these things we're, we're talking about. And we can be good citizens and we can stand shoulder to shoulder with people and we can just be, be, just be present in their pain and just, and just like help everyone as they carry on. So I suppose I, would probably think of that. If my interest in death eases anybody else's burden a bit, then that's probably no bad thing. Lucy? Um, Yeah, similar, really. I think I... um, I think about my son. I think, um, you know, I just fundamentally want him to think that I was cool in some way. (laughs) Or be proud of me. He will until a certain age. And then he won't. And then he might again. Yeah. Yeah. And um, when I first qualified um a really good friend of mine and we qualified together and we both had these little tiny little pins that we wore um on our uniform so little superman um logo and it's kind of stayed throughout our our friendship but it's always made me i want to be a super nurse that's basically what i want people to remember me for being yeah Mm. um not in a like you know cheesy way but in a cool in a cool way (laughs) (laughs) Thanks, super cool, Lucy. Simon? <laughs> so I've obviously had some time to think about legacy and, you know, with a life-shortening diagnosis um, such as mine. And I think initially, like, I've changed a lot and I've grown a lot in the last year as a person. I suppose I've learned lessons people would learn in their 70s, for instance. Um, initially, I was like, what is my legacy? What do I mean? And it's like, where... Like, I've only lived for so long, so where's my stamp on this community, on this society on the world that I believe, you know, yeah. exists. And there was a lot of pressure to be like, oh, I need to have a legacy. Well, what, what does that even mean? But then through, obviously, mindfulness and meditation, I've realised, you know, I can live purposely and cancer does not define me. And um, it's only a part of my life. Like, I'm a restaurateur, I'm a writer, I'm a blogger, I'm a wife, I'm a sister. You know, I'm all these different things. That is my legacy. So just living day to day and realising that every day that I live, you know, for my family, I try and do good things. I try and talk about death. I try and, you know, like, <laughs> I, you know, being on this panel today, like every day I just try and do something. That, that's therapy for me and that can help other people. Yeah, I'm, sure, I'm sure it does. Yeah. 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 Poppy? I don't know why I feel like this, but I really love the idea of just like you die and then you just disappear I think because we live in a world where people are like so obsessed with 
their achievements <laughs> when actually just like getting up you know clearly every, you know almost everyone on the panel has basically said like it's my family you know it's doing my best with my family and I I just feel like I don't need to be remembered in a hundred years I just want to be like a seven out of ten human today <laughs> you know and just sort of then I'll die and I'm happy to be forgotten I don't feel like I need people to be dredging me up for the sake of traditional do you know what I mean yeah, yeah that's it really I want flowers that spell out the word legend <laughs> right got your notebooks out and then be Probably forgotten in a week, apart from a cat who'll be hungry, so someone could feed yeah. him. And my ambition is just not to get my face eaten by my cats. That's literally, that's literally it. Whereas I'm okay with that because he will be hungry. Yeah. So Penny, I'll, I'll send Penny him sometimes bites my face and I'm just sleeping. <laughs> she hasn't even waited. Getting in there. Which feels like the perfect way to end <laughs> panel events with Hannah's face being eaten yeah. by cats. Thanks for listening, and a big thank you to Kathy Rensenbrink, Poppy Mardell, Simon Thompson and Lucy Rudd for taking part in this Macmillan Let's Talk About Death panel. If it's got you thinking about how and where you would like to be cared for at the end of your life, choosing the funeral you'd like, the legacy you want to leave behind, or who you want to remember in your will, Macmillan has information and resources to support the conversation and to help you have it. Visit macmillan.org forward slash let's talk about death to help start your conversation. Standard issue for all women.